All right. Hey, um, a couple questions um, have come in. Let me answer a couple of um, the uh, more easy ones. Uh, someone asked, what are you, your two words when it came to your marriage? And the answers are, none of your business. So there we go. Okay. Uh, no, seriously, the words were um, fun and fulfilled. Those were the, those were my words. Um, Secondly, um, someone says, any advice on having twins? Well, they're coming soon, and they have two little squiggly smiley faces, which is great. Here's my advice to parents of expecting twins. Year four is awesome. <laughs> That's all the questions we're going to take for tonight. Um, we're moving on. I will handle a, uh, a couple more. However, um, you know, we mentioned the uh, favorite song that you have. You know, you got a fa- you guys have a favorite song? Uh, we do. What is it? Uh, Etta James Atlanta. Etta James. No idea. All right. So, um, Aaron, do you guys have a favorite song? Aaron. Uh, my, our favorite song is actually one he composed. He composed? <laughs> All right, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, time out, time out, time out, time out, time out. So, every man in this room suddenly feels enormously insecure in this moment. <laughs> like, oh, stink, man, if I gotta be writing music, it's over. Like, I ain't going on my rallying cry. Like, that's, you know, that's like, goal in the next three months, write my wife a song. Not, right, okay, okay, so that's, that's great. Let's find something a little more realistic. So somebody else? <laughs> Anybody else have a song? So uh, there was a song, I think if I... Clint Black or something? Was that the right? Was that right? Okay, yeah. So we wanted to just kind of ramp this up, just kind of set the mood for uh, for this evening. So let's go ahead and roll that. And uh, you guys know this song? Uh oh. Oh, it's a flash mob. Do we just have six people who's doing this, or what? They're all, they're all over 40, just so you know, so. Oh, sorry, 38, sorry, okay. <laughs> these times are trouble, and these times are good, and they're always gonna be. Yeah, so songwriter and dancers, like, we're... Like, like, this is really troubling to me. <laughs> it's pretty cool, but yeah, not going to happen in my world, so. Alright, that's enough. Sit down. <laughs> Nicely done. Hey, I hope that, um, hope that sets you in a good mood tonight to, um, Talk about our next uh, next session. A couple questions. Um, one person asked um, this: How do you be a submissive wife when your husband doesn't take the initiative in leading? Yeah, that's a great question. A lot of um, women who are um, struggling and wrestling with that reality. The great thing is, if that's in your position, First Peter three like answers that just very very clearly. 
uh, which should encourage you at one level because that's not an uncommon problem. Like, apparently, when Peter wrote 1 Peter 3, there was a fair number of women who were more godly than their husbands. And so what Peter said was to um, demonstrate your beauty with a quiet and gentle spirit so that if any of your husbands are not obedient to the word, they may be one without a word, this is the key, by the behavior of their wives. In other words, when a godly wife acts in a way that fits with the gospel, it actually has a beautiful effect in that it applies godly pressure to a husband as he sees his wife's example. Or to put it really bluntly, um, you are not your husband's personalized version of the Holy Spirit. The best thing you can do is be godly, love him as Christ loved the church, um, and then allow the Holy Spirit to put pressure on your husband to lead in a, in, a, in, a, in a godly way. As he sees, the text says, your chaste behavior coupled with fear. What's interesting is that text comes right after another passage that talks about suffering. And it talks about how Jesus suffered, that when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. Um, he didn't threaten but it says he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. And then it says, likewise, wives, be submissive to your own husbands. So somehow there's a connection between the sufferings of Christ and entrusting yourself to the one who just, judges justly, and then what it means to live in a difficult and hard marriage. And so at one level, that's incredibly encouraging, I would think, because it, it, it reminds, or it, it gives place, I guess you could say, to the fact that living in a, a marriage where a husband isn't leading can be really, really challenging, and you're to continue and trust yourself to the one who judges justly. The other thing is this. Uh, along with applying 1 Peter 3, I think it would be wonderful for you to find ways to appropriately encourage your husband in his relationship with Christ without and, and his spiritual leadership without trying to become his personalized version of the Holy Spirit. You're going to have to pray through how you say that, how you encourage him, um, you may ask, hey, would it be okay if, if I you know, prayed with the kids at night? Would you like to join us as we do this? If your husband doesn't want to go to church, say, hey, we're going to go to church, love to have you come along. Um, but you're not putting inordinate pressure on him because you don't want him to become uh, a follower of Jesus or um, somehow suddenly feel this pressure like he's got to, got to lead. And let me just flip it because the question isn't necessarily designed um, for this, but this also means that men, that your wives are craving for you to lead spiritually. And it's very difficult when you aren't. And to find ways to either pray with your wife, to circulate family around the word, to be the first person that um, initiates uh, godly behavior and godly conversations. And uh, wives are just longing for that. To, and even if it, you're not doing it well, you just just it's still worth doing and, and even um, doing something in that regards. Um, here's another one. Um, my wife has put on weight through pregnancies and before we were married, I told her that I was not attracted to overweight women. I love her, but how do I tell her that she's beautiful with that between us? It's a great question. A couple things from this question. Number one, I think it's really important to acknowledge the utter self-centeredness and the arrogance of making statements about other people in their body conditions. And I just want to encourage you, no matter who this is, but even your own homes, like, like you ought not to be making fun of people who are overweight, not just because 
I think it's wrong. Um, and by the way, Philippians 3 talks about whose God is their belly. Gluttony is one side of the sin. So is an overfatuation with being a foodie and weight and working out. And I'm, I think you should be healthy, but it, it's, it's gone from here all the way over there. And Philippians 3, their God is your belly. Is, it can be applied to somebody who's got 3% body fat and their BMI is right in the right zone. But they're working out every single day because not they want to be a good steward, but because they want to be the image. And so it's not just about weight. So just be, be careful. You're raising children who are catching this tone that if I don't have a certain body image, then I'm going to be made fun of by my parents. So just, just note that somewhere. Secondly, to acknowledge the reality of just the really the, the, the self-centeredness of that kind of, um, of statement. And I don't say that to, to get in your grill or make you feel badly uh, more than you already do about this statement, but just acknowledge, like, I should have never said something like that. Like, that's just wrong. Um, I think it's important to acknowledge that that's wrong. Then secondly, in, in respect to, you know, your, your spouse's present um, uh, physical condition, I think for you to be able to affirm what um, beauty is, not only in the external but also in the internal and to create safety in the context of your marriage and your home by praying with one another by affirming your spouse and by acknowledging that you think this um, person that God has given you is extraordinarily attractive but I need to be honest because of this previous statement like you got to make it up you have to eclipse what's been said previously, and it's not just going to happen. Like It's not one for one in terms of words. It's probably one to 40 in terms of, of uh, comments like that. So just know that those kind of words have significant long-term effects um, on people, and just realize the importance of um, what it means to be able to love and affirm, and hopefully, I think this question was turned in before this morning's message. Hopefully today, uh, this message helped you understand what to, um, to, to do about that. And then finally, um, and this is a, a heavy one and a familiar one. In the event that your husband has viewed pornography, how do you suggest that the wife deal with the blow to her self-esteem? And how should the husband walk to rebuild his, her rather, physical confidence um, dealing with this now and am struggling? So first to the wife. First and foremost, you need to know that even this pain is something you can lay at the feet of Jesus and know that your worth doesn't come through your husband's eyes. It comes through what Jesus thinks of you. And that you can trust Jesus even in the midst of the, the gut punch of this pain that you, um, that you feel. The, the second thing is that you can um, point your own heart towards what is truly beautiful and to be reminded of what I talked about um, even this, this morning about what really should be affirmed, that's not only important for your husband to embrace, and I'll get to him in a minute, but it's also important for you to embrace that lest you suddenly now sort of like go there like I need to be that. You don't need to be that because that's not really what's ultimately beautiful and attractive. That is a fool's errand, a shell game. That's not what true beauty is. And so I, I would want to keep you remembering what Peter said, that, that beauty comes from the hidden person of the heart. True, it's external, absolutely, but there's nothing more beautiful than a woman who's trying to run hard after Christ. Um, you can keep your airbrushed image. I'll take a woman who's trying to follow hard after Jesus. And then, and then finally, um, in regards to the, the woman, I just I want you to understand that this particular sin issue um, is not 
a statement about your worth or your lack thereof. In other words, if you were somehow better, then your husband wouldn't have gone this direction. Um, and we don't have time to fully unpack that. I don't want to give a short answer that makes it sound like I'm justifying the, the, the viewing of pornography because I'm certainly not. But I do want you to understand that how you see it and how you feel it is about it is different than how he feels and thinks about it. And it's a category that's not probably even fully computable in your mind and your heart. And so when that's a reality that you're dealing with, you just need to remember that I need to trust Christ. At the end of the day, this is part of the brokenness of the world. Even Jesus can conquer this. I need to focus on what is truly beautiful. And somehow I've got to remind and preach to my heart that ultimately this is not about me, even though it feels so strongly. And I even justified that this morning. Understand those real and legitimate emotions, but those can't stay there for ever. You've got to let that go and be able to trust Christ. Now, if you're a guy, um, man, you've got to pursue Jesus and give evidence that you really have the right appetites for what true beauty is and what it means to really follow, follow hard after Jesus. And that means you've got to be aggressive in your um, commitment to follow Christ. Your godliness actually becomes a means of assurance for your wife that you really are affectionate about the right, the right things. So like your prayer life has something to do with porn. Your reading your Bible has something to do with her fears. He back into it again. And so just know that that godliness is really important, that you need to create and fan into flame appetites for what's really desirable, and hopefully even this... Um, these last couple days have helped to just kind of remind you what is truly attractive. And you need to redefine and re-satiate um, what is ultimately beautiful. And then the second thing is you need to work really hard to create security in the context of your marriage for your, um, for your wife. Hopefully this morning you understood in a new way that level of insecurity and what that does in terms of how she feels. And um, you're going to have to work um, hard to be able to create that environment that is important for a marriage to, uh, to thrive. And that may mean, third, that you have to take precautions that seem rather socially and culturally odd. And you just need to embrace those and say, praise God that I get to love my wife this way. And yeah, I'm technologically Amish. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> love it. Because I'll do anything to be able to help my wife um, follow Jesus after what um, I've, I've done to her. And um, so you need to embrace those and realize that all those things are related to, to security. Um, and then finally, I would just say, if you're a couple that's still wrestling with this, or if you're um, um, an individual still wrestling with this, um, you, you ought not walk alone through this uh, particular uh, journey. You need to find some brothers or sisters who can help you so that you can know how to be able to find your way forward. And look, our church is filled with people who this is a part of their story and they are following hard after Jesus. There is hope after the most um, heinous of all sins and the most long-term patterns. Jesus is able to break the power of sin in our lives. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the captives free. His blood can make the foulest clean. That's what the cross does, and that's the beauty of what Jesus can and does do um, for people. Let's pray. We'll get into the material tonight. Father in heaven, we ask you now to um, help us to understand the beauty of what you define as a biblical view of sexuality. 
We ask that you would give us grace to understand your word, to look at it deeply, and to have our hearts, our minds challenged by what is here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go to Song of Solomon, chapter 4. I hope that by now you're starting to enjoy this book. Some of you have already talked to me. You came with a little bit of fear and trepidation as to what the book of Song of Solomon was going to be like, and you found that it's a pretty awesome book. It's got some things that make you clear your throat a little bit, but there's some things in it as well that help us to understand um, the target, which is to elevate our passions for marriage, to elevate our passions for our spouse, and to elevate our passions for Christ. My aim in this session is to help you understand a biblical view of sexuality. We're going to be in uh, Song of Solomon 4, we're going to be in Proverbs 5, and we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 7. And what I want to be able to do is help you understand how does the Bible think about the signature expression of marriage, namely sexuality. The first time that my dad told me about sex, it did not go well. He had, I'd asked him a question um, about three months earlier, and he said to me, you, you know, we'll hold that question, we'll talk about that this summer. And it was like one of those moments where like, those words rang in my head, summer, 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 summer. And I thought, what is this that we have to delay three months for this answer? So I was pretty curious. So we're out camping in northern Michigan, and my dad said, son, we're going to go for a walk, and I'm going to have this summer, 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 summer conversation that I, oh, I knew something, like, some, like, like I knew this was a big deal, like a varsity conversation. So my dad and I walked around the lake and we stopped at a, a, a spot where there was um, uh, some nice smooth sand. He took out a stick and he like drew things in the sand. And I was like, man, I can do that on the sand. It's embarrassing. And I was just, I was like, what? This, what? Walking around the lake, and I'm just my mind's just like, like what in the are you what? I mean, so I had no idea. I was just what in the world? Get all the way around the lake, explain all of the biology, everything else. He said, "Son, do you have any questions?" I had all kinds of questions. I said, "Dad, I got one question." He's like, "All right, what is it?" I said, "So." In light of everything that you told me, let's go this straight. Like, this isn't something that you do on a first date, right? <laughs> and he was like, "All right, we gotta go for another walk." So he went, oh, so, <laughs> because he got all of the biology right, but he forgot the morality piece. So he had to do another lap around the lake. The beautiful thing about a biblical view of sexuality is that it merges both biology and morality in order to platform in a beautiful way the message of the gospel. I want to encourage you, and we'll perhaps talk about this a little bit later, that you have that opportunity to connect those dots for your kids and to be able, if you have them, to be able to help them understand the, the, the beauty of that. And maybe you can do just a little better maybe than, my dad did a great job, but do maybe a better job than what your parents um, did. You know, you may have heard the parents who've explained to their kids the beauty of sexuality, and 
Then the kid's like, oh, so like that's where our brothers and sisters came from. They're like, yeah, that's exactly right. Oh, great, we have, we have, four, we have four kids. Four brothers and sisters? Yeah, that's right. And you and mom have had sex four times? <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what that had to do with my message, but that's funny, so... Take a look at chapter 4 and verse 1. Remember where we are in this book. He is um, identifying the, the beauty of the moment of the wedding. He has praised her in verse 1 about her overall beauty. Her eyes are like doves, her hair, flock of goats, teeth like shorn, you, like shorn sheep or ewes. Um, she still has all of her teeth in verse 2. Her lips are like a scarlet thread. Her cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate. Her neck's like the Tower of David. Her breasts are like two fawns. He's going to go to the mountain of myrrh, the hill of frankincense. We talked about what that means this morning. It's not talking about hiking. Verse 7, you are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. That's the important verse regarding her beauty. And then verse 8, come with me from Lebanon, my bride, come with me from Lebanon. And then he goes on in verse 9, and he says, you have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated, captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. Notice that he's just now he's beginning referring to her as her bride because this is in the context of the wedding. How much better is your love than wine? And the fragrance of your oils than spice. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. And then, and then notice that he, he calls her a locked garden. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with the choicest of fruits, henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, and all the trees, with all the trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes with choice spices, a, a garden fountain, a well of living water and flowing streams from Lebanon. So let me give you a couple points to think about tonight. Number one is this. <clears throat> Sex in marriage is very good. So Solomon is um, involved in um, praising his wife's beauty here. And what's happening here is he's exalting in something that is very, very good. Go over to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 31. We've already been here a little bit, but I just want to highlight this for you to, to see this began all the way back in the, in the Garden of Eden, and in chapter 1 and verse 27, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female, blessed them, and said, verse 28, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion. And then, verse 31, it says, And God saw everything that he had made, and this includes, by the way, Adam and Eve and their sexuality, and he says, It was very good. So, 
Day one, God creates, says good. Day, day two, good. Day three, good. Day four, good. Day five, good. Day six, good. After he rests the seventh day, he looks at all that he has created, included, including sexuality, and says, now that's very good. So what you need to know, this is pre-fall. This is prior to the entrance of sin into the world. And so there is something fundamentally good about human sexuality. In fact, according to Genesis 1.31, there's something fundamentally really good about human sexuality. In fact, I think that human sexuality in the context of marital love between a man and a woman is the closest earthly representation that we have to the Trinity. Somebody, you may have heard someone try to explain the Trinity to you like it's a, like, like an egg, like there's a, a shell and a yolk and the, whatever the white stuff is called, and, and then you got maybe an apple, you got the skin, you got the seed, and then the, the, the meat. I, I think the better example is human sexuality, and here's why. Because in the union of a husband and a wife, in their union together, in their beautiful one flesh union, they do what God does in his world in there. They create another living being. Is it any wonder then that the enemy would target this beautiful demonstration of the nexus of love, of marital faithfulness, and something that images our creator? To think that in an act of love, you actually create another image bearer, a soul. An eternal soul has been created by means of an act of love that pictures the union of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Like, that, that is an unbelievable picture of the beauty of who God is. And he, he puts that beautiful image in the context of human sexuality. So this idea of being a one flesh union means that there is something that is a strong bond that is formed between a husband and wife, and what this also means is that sexual desire is very powerful, designed by God to be powerful, and is not inherently sinful. So some of you have a, a wrong view of sexuality because you have maybe some experiences in the past or because you, know, you were raised in an environment where your parents just said no, 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 and never helped you understand what the other yes is. And I mean, encourage you, raise children, don't just tell them no, you need to set boundaries, but help them also understand what the beauty of the other side of the equation is. Why wait? What's, why is it worth it? What's the stronger yes? I don't know that evangelicalism has made a strong enough case for the beauty of sexuality in the confines of marriage. We are sort of losing the communication war with that in that respect. And help your children understand that while sexual desire is powerful, in and of itself it's not inherently sinful. In fact, there's something inherently renewing about human sexuality. Listen to what Tim Keller says. The Bible does not the Bible says, don't unite with someone physically unless you're also willing to unite with the person emotionally, personally, socially, economically, and legally. Don't become physically naked and vulnerable to another person without becoming vulnerable in every other way because you have given up your freedom and bound yourself in marriage. Then, once you have given yourself in marriage, Sex is a way of maintaining and deepening that union as the years go by. There is a need to rekindle the heart and renew the commitment. 
And there must be an opportunity to recall all that the other person means to you and to give yourself anew. And sex between a husband and wife is the unique way to do that. Indeed, sex is perhaps the most powerful God-created way to help you give your entire self to another human being. Sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. So you must not use sex to say anything else. According to the Bible, a covenant is necessary for sex. It places and becomes a place rather of security for vulnerability and intimacy, but through a marriage covenant, but though excuse me, but though a marriage covenant is necessary for sex, sex is also necessary for the maintenance of that covenant. Sex is your covenant renewal service. So you're playing out the drama of what it means to be one flesh. Now, go back to um, Song of Solomon chapter 4. So sex and marriage, first and foremost, is very good. He is praising this woman He is um, identifying her beauty again and the significance of what she means to him. In verse 11 of chapter 4, he describes her, her, her lips, it says, drip nectar. He describes her with words like milk and honey. Where where else is that found in the Bible? He he describes her with with words like milk and honey, The, the promised land. When God promised, you're going to go to the land of Canaan, and Canaan flows with milk and honey. What What he's in effect saying here is you are the promised land. Like, Like this relationship that I have with you is the best of all relationships. He praises her for her, pu- her, her purity, calling her a locked garden, and this image of garden becomes a, um, a euphemism for her um, sexuality. Interestingly enough, Song of Solomon is sort of in the middle of the Bible. It points back to the Garden of Eden and looking forward to the garden that is in the middle of the city of the New Jerusalem. So it's garden to garden or garden to city, and the idea here is experiencing the beauty of oneness and intimacy. In verses 13 to 15, he describes her with exotic spices of this garden. He loves this garden with its various delights. It's filled with an orchard of pomegranates, choicest fruits, nard, saffron, calamus, cinnamon, all the trees of frankincense, myrrh, aloes, all the choicest choicest spices. And then in verse 16, we see here the word awake. Remember previously, she had told her young little girls, don't awaken love until it's time. In verses 16 through chapter 5 and verse 1 is the consummation of their marriage. It's prominent here because of previous cautions about the awakening love before it's time. And she, she calls on the wind, O north wind, come, come south wind, blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. The language is discreet but apparent. She's inviting the man to come, and the man does indeed come. In verse 16b, she says, let my beloved come to his garden to eat its choicest fruits. And then he says in chapter 5 and verse 1, I came to my garden, my sister, my bride, I gathered my myrrh and my spice. I ate, notice this, I ate my honeycomb with my honey and I drank my wine with my milk. In other words, I had it 
all. That's the point. And then these this chorus of girls show up, which is a little awkward. So they, they show up there, and they're like, eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. And the idea is not that they suddenly stormed into the bedroom, like, who let these kids in here? Didn't you lock the door? That's how that was happening. But what, what, what the idea is, is that like the, music, the, the B-roll music starts to roll, and the scene begins to pull back with the sort of the, the, the hallmark sort of moment, this, this idea that the beautiful moment that they have long waited for has come, the, the sunset has now happened, the music has started, their love and their joy has been maximized. And this, if you remember from the beginning, this is the, um, the climax of the book of Song of Solomon, and everything to this point has been leading to this, and then from this point, everything now will um, not regress, but will come out of this particular beautiful union now go to Proverbs chapter 5. Not only is sex in the context of marriage very good, it's also a gift. Look at Proverbs chapter 5 and verse 15 through 20. So I, I mentioned a statement that made earlier um, this morning or yesterday that the power of no is in a stronger yes, and Proverbs 5 and Proverbs 7 are both about the perils of adultery. And so in Proverbs, using again language that um, a young child might not fully understand, but an adult, particularly an adult who's been sexually active with a spouse will know, I know what he's referring to, uh, uses words like verse 15, drink water from your own cistern, flowing waters from your own well, should your springs be scattered abroad and streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Tomorrow we'll talk about the, the beauty of marital love and faithfulness and how there are some things that in the confines of your relationship that nobody gets to know about each of you except the two of you. Like that there's parts of your body that nobody sees except one other person on the face of the earth. That there are things that you have as your treasured possession that nobody else has, which is why he says, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth as a lovely deer and a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight and be intoxicated always in her love. And then he said this, why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? In other words, are you an idiot? Seriously? Like, you're going to take a few minutes of pleasure with some illicit person who probably doesn't even know you. Like, they just have this idea of you at the office, like what you're like and how you look all good when you come in. And you, you think, like, that's real love? He says, why, why would you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman? He, previously, he's, he's laying up all these other things that make sexual expression in marriage so much more glorious and so much more beautiful. And what he's essentially saying here is that marriage is a gift, a gift that is to be enjoyed, a gift that is to be declared yes, yes, yes over this. So when, I, when I've taught this text at a men's conference before, I've said it, think, I've said it like this. Men, your this is men and women, but I'm going to talk like I'm talking at a men's conference. Men, your wives know what you look like in the morning, and they're still willing to make love to you. 
Your wife knows what your feet smell like, and she's still willing to make love to you. She knows what your gas smells like, and she's still willing to make love to you. She knows what your weaknesses are. She knows what your struggles are. She knows who you are, and yet she's still willing to give, yourself, give herself to you. That's true love. Not some woman who has this stupid idea about what you're like, only to find out it's not really how you really are. That's why so many illicit relationships, they don't last over the long haul. You know why? Because nobody knew what they were getting in the first place. It was all about lust. It was all about some kind of, of airbrushed image of what this life was going to be like, and it just collapsed on itself because it wasn't true love in the first place. So the beautiful thing that Solomon is offering here is a picture of what true love is and what true sexuality is all about. That marriage is a gift, something to be enjoyed. That someone is beautiful to you and you to them who knows you and yet still chooses to give themselves to. This is the beauty of older sexuality. When you got history and you know one another. book of Song of Solomon is a little idealistic. It talks about the beauty of sexual and romantic love in the context of early and, and um, maybe even unexperienced love when the passion is so strong. And it's not that passion doesn't exist when you're older, but it means that as you get older, you've got more water under the bridge. You've got more hurts that you've forgiven. You've got more grace that you've had to extend, that you're even getting older together. And you used to be able to, you could get out of bed and just be like, oh, it's a new day. And then you turn 40 and you're like, oh man, it hurts to get out of bed. And then you find yourself having to go to bed at 8.30 at night because you're so tired and you don't have anything to say when you're traveling in the car anymore because you talked about everything. And you just travel in silence and it's actually okay because what's to talk about anymore and you just kind of traveling along together and you have you're doing life together you're raising kids together and through every season of life there it is a husband and wife expressing their love to one another because of the fact that they've given their lives to each other so marriage or sex in marriage is very good secondly sex in marriage is a gift here's the third point which is from first corinthians chapter six and that is this that sex is more than physical activity. By the way, everything that I'm sharing with you could be the kind of uh, lesson that at an appropriate time you sit down, um, maybe on a, a weekend where you're explaining to your son or daughter the realities of human sexuality. These are the kind of things that, that you would want to walk through with them. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6 Paul is addressing a problem um, in the church where they were thinking that their sexuality was somehow removed from their spirituality. As crazy as it is, there were people in the church who thought that they could go to a, um, a temple and as a part of the temple there were prostitutes as a part of that temple and part of the worship was having sex with these prostitutes, and there were people in the church who actually thought, well, it doesn't really matter because it's the body and the body's bad. What really matters is the soul. And so Paul writes to them in order to blow this mentality up, which still exists in our own culture. It doesn't matter. It's just sex. It's just physical. And he says this in verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. 
But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexually, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So what's he saying here? saying a host of things. He's saying that the mistake of the Corinthian church was separating their sexuality from who they were in terms of their relationship with Christ. He's saying that there's something spiritually significant that happens in the context of sexual activity, that sexuality involves the person of Jesus, that it is a fundamental function of worship. It means that the marriage bed includes how you look, how you act, how you smell, how you talk, how you pray, how you worship, how you serve. It involves the whole you, including how you have followed Christ. So according to what Paul is saying here, sex is far more than just physical activity. This is what Gary Thomas says. He says, sex is about physical touch to be sure, but it is more than physical touch. It is about what's going on inside of us. Developing a fulfilling sex life means I concern myself more with bringing generosity and service to bed than with bringing washboard abdomens. It means I see my wife as a holy temple of God, not just as a tantalizing human body. It even means that sex becomes a form of physical prayer, a picture of heavenly intimacy that reveals the Shekinah glory of old. So there's something really special about sexuality in the context of marriage. Again, remember my aim for this weekend is to elevate your affections for marriage, elevate your affections for Christ, elevate your affections for your spouse. In this particular session, I'm also at aiming to elevate your understanding and your affection of what sex really means in the context of marriage. It's a covenant renewal that it involves worship. It's the union of two people together where you play out the drama again of the one flesh union when God put you together, when you said, I do, and God knit you together. And sexuality expresses the beauty of that oneness. Next, I think this is point four. Marital sex is the good and helpful expression of good desires. Marital sex is the good and helpful expression of good desires. Look at 1 Corinthians 7 and verse Start with verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, meaning it's, if you can live as a single, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, Paul would argue that in some cases, depending upon circumstances, it might even be preferable. But then he says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. So what's he saying there? He's saying that in the context of a world where sexuality is such a strong human reality that the legitimate expression or the legitimate avenue of that sexuality is that every man should have his own wife and every woman should have her own husband. So, although the Bible doesn't explicitly state it, I think it's pretty clear based upon this text that that rules out masturbation. I think... Your sexual needs are to be met by your spouse, according to 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 2. What's more, skip ahead to 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 5, marital sex is a part of God's design to also fight off sexual temptation. 
There was a mentality in the Corinthian church, apparently, that it was more spiritual, even though you were married, to be abstinent, and people kind of wore it as a badge. Like, well, we're married, but we're, we're putting off the, the sinfulness of sexuality, and so we've chosen to be married, but we're not involved sexually. And you can imagine that people viewed that as heroic, maybe even odd. And some people thought, man, they're really spiritual. Like, that's crazy. And Paul said, yeah, it is crazy. In fact, it's dangerous spiritually. He goes on and he explains the important reality of sexual activity in the context of marriage. He says, do not deprive one another except by perhaps for agreement or by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So you need to know that a, a healthy sexual relationship between a husband and wife where you understand the beauty of God's design, where you're playing out the drama of a one flesh union, where you are affirming one another, seeking one another, helping to involve in securing one another in the midst of all of your insecurities and pursuing one another with passionate pleasure, you actually serve to provide a level of protection around your spouse because of a satisfied marital sexuality. Listen to how um, John Piper references this in his book, Momentary Marriage. He says, in Ephesians 6, Paul says that we should ward off Satan with the shield of faith. But here, in 1 Corinthians 7, he says to married people, ward off Satan with sufficient sexual intercourse. Don't abstain too long but come together again soon so that Satan will not gain a foothold. And then he says, well, what is it? Do we guard ourselves from Satan with the shield of faith, or do we guard ourselves from Satan with the shield of sex? And the answer for married people is that faith, listen to this, faith makes use of sexual intercourse as a means of grace. <laughs> For the people God leads into marriage, sexual relations are a God-ordained means of overcoming temptation to sin, of overcoming the temptation to adultery, overcoming the temptation for sexual fantasy, overcoming the temptation to the sin of pornography. Faith humbly accepts these gifts and offers thanks to God for them. So, the reason I'm highlighting this is so that you can see that the powerful reality of this gift that God has given us and the significance of how it might be, it might be deployed. Now, next point, 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 3. So marriage is not merely in physical activity. It is the good and helpful expression of good desires. Next, marriage is to be a regular activity. 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 3. It says... The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. When was the last time you used the word conjugal? Conjugal. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. Likewise, the wife to her husband. So what's he saying there? He's saying that we are commanded to meet our spouse's needs. So I identified for you this morning some needs and according to this, we are commanded to meet our spouse's needs, to do the very best that we can to meet those needs. And the result is that our spouse should be satisfied with the beautiful 
sexual expression that happens in the context of marriage. Husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. Again, listen to what John Piper says. I infer then from this and from Jesus' teaching in general that happy and fulfilling sexual relations in marriage depend on each partner aiming to give satisfaction to the other. It is the joy of each to make the other happy. And if so, a hundred problems will be solved before, they're happy, before they happen. Husbands, if it is your joy to bring her satisfaction, you will be sensitive to what she needs and wants. You will learn, listen carefully, that the preparation for satisfactory sexual intercourse at 10 o'clock p.m. begins with tender words at 7 o'clock a.m. and continues throughout the day as kindness and respect. And, I love how Piper uses words, and when the time comes, you will not come in like a Sherman tank. <laughs> I love that. Like, he's writing, he's thinking, come in like Sherman tank. I love that. That's awesome. Will not come in like a, a Sherman tank, but you will know her pace and bring her skillfully along. And unless she gives you the signal, you will say, her climax, not mine, is the goal. And you will find that in the long run, it is more blessed to give than to receive. A quick pastoral word on that. The goal is your spouse's satisfaction, which for most men involves some kind of physiological climax. For many women it does, but not for all. In fact, there's many a wife who would simply just love to be a part of the sexual union and be held and to be loved and to be treated tenderly. But if you put some kind of sort of pressure on this part of your relationship, you will find that it becomes like a third person in your sexual union. Back to this book. This was a helpful statement that I read a number of years ago. Um, I talked this morning about the, um, the need for you to understand wives that your husband desires to be desired sexually. But here's another caveat on this, man, I think that you need to hear. She writes this. To men, while you want to be genuinely desired by your wife, her generally lower level of desire for sex generally, because in some cases it's not the case, but for many women it is. Her lower level desire for sex likely has nothing to do with your desirability. So that's created a lot of tension in marriages, that I want to be desirable to you, but the fact of the matter is you just don't desire sex as much as I do. So she writes, you might want to read that again. And if you think about it, it's actually good news for the 99.9% .9 of us who don't look anything like Tom Cruise. Here's the facts. Among the survey takers who wanted less sex than their husbands, fully 75% indicated that it had nothing to do with his desirability, sexual prowess, or general studliness. And then she goes on and identifies, well, this is actually Jeff and Shanti, five uh, particular truths. Let me just give these quickly to you. I think these are helpful. Truth number one that you need to know is that she has normally a lower sex drive than you and she'd change that fact if she could. 
He writes, this doesn't mean she doesn't want sexual activity or won't enjoy it once it's happening, but seeking it out is not usually on her mind. Number two, oh, rather, one woman said this, for guys it seems sexual activity provides relief or escape from exhaustion. For women, we have to pull ourselves out of exhaustion in order to want to have sex. Truth number two, she needs more warm-up than you. One woman provides a great metaphor. She says, it's not that I don't want to make love to my husband, but at the end of the long day with four kids, my mind is set on a course like a cruise ship heading for port. Port being that quiet bit of space a mom anticipates when the kids are asleep, the chores are done, the house is quiet, and just as I'm within sight of that port, my hubby rolls over and says, what you doing over there? <laughs> Why is that funny? Like, I think, did you write that? It's not that, she writes, it's not that I don't want to be with him, but mentally it's like trying to stop a cruise ship that's going full steam ahead and making it turn on a dime, and I can't quite turn off the day and do an about face in the blink of an eye like he can. There's a lot of men who just, they just don't understand that. Number three, truth number three, your body no matter how much of a stud you are, does not by itself turn on her body. He writes, your wife is not like you. She's not sexually aroused simply by seeing you at your studly best. If, if you look particularly handsome, sexy, oh, she'll notice and she will find you attractive. But get this, her body is not still lusting over your body like you might over hers. It says, listen to an actual conversation of a once long married, uh, not a once, a long married couple. <laughs> um, she delivering the shocking news. Yeah, there isn't one thing about your body that makes me sexually attracted to you and want to go to bed with you. <laughs> he disbelieving. What? I thought I was sexy and good looking. You told me that I was. She calmly replies, oh, you are. It just has nothing to do with why I want to have sex with you. Noting the blank look on his face, she continues, really, nothing about your naked body makes me hot. <laughs> That is, until after we're sexually involved. He sputtering, but I, how? She reassuring him, babe, listen, I like you, and I like your naked body. It's sweet. Actually, you're mine, but it's not like my body is lusting after yours. He gasping, what? Well, what about me in my black leather jacket? You always come up to me and growl. Are, are you saying? She's like, nope, not even in that cute black leather jacket. You look totally hot, mind you. And I do want to be with you, but I'm just telling you, physically, my body does not become sexually aroused by your black leather jacket. The truth, he writes, for all of us average Joes is that our wives can find us desirable and attractive, but they still not may be turned on by that alone. Women get turned on in other, more out of sight, and more powerful ways, and it leads to another fact about sex that most guys have heard over and over, but have never quite come to terms with. This is the final one, number four. Sex starts in her heart. Her body's ability to respond sexually is tied to how she feels emotionally about you in the moment. She's not feeling anything in her heart. Her body's sex switches are all the way off, even if you put on your black leather jacket. The effect is that where you might greatly desire her, even though she has been rude to you in the morning, how you treated her in the morning really matters to her. 
She's not keeping score, but she just can't help it. For her, those two things go together. What's in her heart about you and how she responds sexually are melded into one. You see how the insecurity and the desirability of the husband could be beautiful, and it also can be war. That's why some of you have some of the most painful conversations about this particular subject. And then finally, truth number five, which is this. She wants pleasure as much as you do, but if it's not happening, she may be reluctant. Meaning that you can put all kinds of pressure on the context of a marriage, both relationally and sexually, when the reality is all that pressure is creating and stealing and robbing the beautiful intimacy that God intends that's sexual, but it may not be, excuse the word, orgasmic. So what I want you to think about is your goal is the satisfaction of your mate, and what you need to do is to have a conversation and say, help me understand, like, am I meeting your needs? Am I not? What am I not doing well? And, and if it's too uncomfortable for you, you just write her a letter or write him a letter and say, would you mind answering these questions? And you can turn this in, mail it back to me. Here's a self-esteem envelope, right? Next week, and put a little deadline on it. And we'd love to have this conversation. Somehow figure out what are the ways that you can have this conversation. And finally, number, whatever this is, six. First Corinthians 7, 4 says that our bodies were made for one another. First Corinthians 7, 4, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So check this out. Jesus owns my body, Sarah Vogup owns my body, then I own my body in that order. And the body provides the opportunity for us to be able to serve one another. Matt Chandler says this, we see in this text that marital sex is not only romantic, but also gentle. I often hear guys complain about the frequency of sex in their marriage, but I can tell by other things that they say that the way that they say those things, that they may be their own worst enemy. And I want to say to them, maybe if you quit groping your wife, she'd be more interested. Women respond to slowness and gentleness. And once you've reached the point of intercourse, she may want you to move more quickly and touch more firmly, but most women can't get to that point until they feel wooed to it. They want to feel safe and secure. They want to feel embraced, not grabbed. They want to feel caressed, not groped. And so we have opportunity here to be able to serve one another. So I hope in laying this out for you, you can see this has the potential to be something really beautiful and really glorious. It also has the potential to create so much pain and so much deep hurt. And I don't know where the Lord finds you on the scale of, of that in the context of your marriage, but I just want to tell you that based upon Song of Solomon 4, 1 Corinthians 7, Genesis chapter 1, Proverbs 5, this relationship in the confines of your marriage is worth working on, awkwardness and all, pain and challenge and misunderstanding. Like, you cannot give up. You, you cannot give up. You can't retreat to your corner and just say, we've been trying to figure this out for 10 years. It's not working. You, you, you can't. You can't do that. I want to invite you back into that conversation. Maybe somebody else needs to help you to be able to dialogue through it. Maybe you need to figure out some way to have a, a, a conversation about this, but just know that this, this is an important aspect to be able to talk about. 
Additionally, you may have a sexual past, maybe far-reaching or maybe recent, and I just want to remind you that despite all of that past, that may have been your fault, or in some cases it wasn't your fault, it can be eclipsed with the beauty of what God's grace can be in this particular arena. So, a few questions as we wrap up. How well are you doing in serving your spouse when it comes to his or her sexual desires? Is sexual intimacy something that you can talk about? Or is this like the first time in a long time that the subject has even been within your hearing? Um, A practical suggestion, how do you handle when you have different sexual desires or different needs? Well, husband and wife need to meet one another halfway. Wife needs to be concerned about husband's needs. Husband needs to be concerned about the timing of that, or maybe it's reversed. Maybe it's a a different in your marriage, husband and wife. Maybe it's a wife who desires sexual activity more than a husband. That happens. So what, what do you do? Let me give you a couple suggestions. Let's say that your husband, and it becomes clear that you're wanting sexual intimacy with your wife, and she recognizes that, and let's just say that for that wife, it's been one of those cruise ship moments, like you were pulling in the port, and you had no idea, like this request was coming your way, and you know First Corinthians 7, you know, and there's this desire, you want to serve your husband, but the reality is you know it's been a really long day, and the fact of the matter is you'll, 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 you'll be there, and you'll be as all in as you can, but it's been a very hard and long day. And let me give you a particular script that I think has worked, I've used it for uh, premarital counseling couples, use it in my own marriage as well. And it goes something like this. This is the wife saying to her husband, Honey, I want you to know that your needs are really important to me, and I'm willing to meet those needs right now. I'm really tired, but I'm still willing to meet those needs because you're important to me. However, if you could wait 24 hours and we could reconvene around 10 o'clock tomorrow evening, I'll have all kinds of energy and would love to be able to make love to you. You can decide. (laughs) Well, then you get the freedom to choose and to decide what it is that you want to be able, and in so doing, what it does is it communicates love, support, grace, and mercy. I've had other couples before who were struggling in this arena. They had very little hope. They were struggling in their, 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 their sexual activity. And so what I had them do is to chart out, let's just talk about what's a, what's a frequent see enough for us as a couple. So you figure that out. And I actually have them put a little smiley face on their calendar and plan. Say, hey, look, we're going to target this particular day of the week. And this is when we're going to plan. We're gonna pl- if this is this important, we're going we're gonna to plan this in our life so that we know, look, we're, we're moving towards this. So we're not gonna we're gonna take the guesswork out of it because of the reality of some of the tension that we're we're feeling together. How well do you feel that your spouse understands your emotional and sexual needs? Do you make sexual activity in the context of your marriage something that is relational and something that's vibrant? Does do you do you make it fun? Let me give you an example. Scott, do you have that video of Savannah ready to roll? So um, I received this video um, on my phone um, earlier this year while I was working on a sermon. It was around mm, one o'clock or so. So go ahead and roll that. 
Hi, Mark Brogap. My name is Rebecca, and I work for Trivago, and you have won a trip to, a overnight trip to a hotel with your wife. All you have to do is go home and pack. So I got that on my phone at noon. I had four and a half pages of a sermon to write, and um, you can't believe how fast you can write a sermon <laughs> when uh, you know that you're going to go away with your wife unannounced for, uh, for a weekend. In fact, uh, Bill, our executive pastor, came to me on Sunday. He was like, Mike, were you in the office on Thursday afternoon? I said, I was. Like, you didn't even come out for like five hours. I was like, I know. My wife was taking me out for, uh, for a special evening. So like, things like that. Mean, mean the world. Or here's another example. One time we were going to see a, a show downtown and um, uh, a musical or something. And um, so we were driving past, uh, uh, we'd gone to the show, we're driving downtown a little bit. And Sarah said, oh, I remember that one time that we like, like just we went to the show and then we stayed downtown. Wasn't that awesome? And I said, yeah, it was. And actually I've got bags in the back. That's what we're going to do tonight. And boom, we just went to a hotel and enjoyed ourselves and had a great memory. And the question I just want to ask you, like when's the last time you've planned to do anything in regards to date night, a weekend getaway, something of that sort, where you're trying to figure out ways to increase the joy and the beauty of what it means for you to be together in the context of your marriage. Now, Savannah is not old enough to know fully what a weekend down, or a night downtown means. She has no idea. But what she knows is this, that mom thinks enough of dad, she's going to plan that weekend. And she saw me come home, skippity-doo-dah, packing my bags, whistling, so excited to be able to go away and spend a, a, a night with my wife. And she, she knew something, there's something special about this. She has no idea of the full context of all of what it means, but she does know that her mom and dad's heart are set on each other. And I think it's really important important for a 10-year-old little girl to understand. Let me close with this regarding the beauty of what it means to worship in the context of marriage. Here's what a wife said, understanding the power and the beauty of a biblical view of sexuality. She said this, loving my husband can become an act of worship to God. As my husband and I lie together, satiated in the afterglow of sexual ecstasy, the most natural thing in the world is for me to offer thanksgiving to my God for the beauty, the glory of our sexual joy. I don't even think about what I'm doing. My heart just turns to the Lord and offers praise. Truly, his gift of sexuality is a wondrous thing. There's a reason why Song of Solomon talks the way that it does about the beauty of sexuality in the confines of marriage. Because the Bible intends to elevate our affections for marriage, intends to elevate our affections for sexuality, so that our affections for Christ can also be elevated. That you'd be able to say, Jesus, I don't deserve my spouse. You know all about my past, and you have forgiven me, and cleansed me, and made me new. And the fact that I get to be able to enjoy the beauty of this gift that you've given to me is just another sign of your undeserving grace. And there's something about this marriage and this union that just declares how wonderful and merciful and kind and good you are. Like, friends, I hope that's how you view biblical sexuality. I really do. Because that's the view of this beautiful gift that God's given us. Let's pray. Lord, we live in a um, 
sexually charged world, that's, that's an understatement. We, we live in an environment where um, to know these truths, to apply them, could create not only joy in the confines of our homes, but also create a platform for us to be able to worship you and glorify you. Thank you that you have given us instruction in your word as to what human sexuality needs to be like. Thank you that you um, bring this book to its beautiful climax in this consummation. And we thank you for the joy of this man and woman in Song of Solomon. We thank you for the, the, the beautiful picture in Proverbs 5, and we are grateful for the instruction from Paul in 1 Corinthians 7. So now help us to be the kind of people who apply the gospel in every area of our lives, both to our past, our present, and our future. And um, Lord, I pray there would be good, healthy, God-honoring conversations over the next number of uh, days or hours or weeks, and that you could um, build a framework within um, biblical marriage that makes much of you and redeems in a new way the covenant renewal service called sex and marriage. So give us grace, we pray, and thank you for your beautiful gifts, including sexuality. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.